Hello, everyone. Welcome to Ancient Modern. Today, my wonderful guest is uh, Dr. or Professor Javier Marquez, who's a colleague of mine at Victoria University of Wellington, and he's someone who, whose interests span both the ancient world and the modern, uh, political science, political theory, authoritarianism, democracy, and um, an interest in R as well, statistics. You seem to, you seem to do everything, Javier. Um, but one of the things I wanted to start out with, actually, because this is a podcast devoted to ancient and modern is your book, uh, A Stranger's Knowledge, Statesmanship, Philosophy, and Law in Plato's Statesman, which I highly recommend to people. I mean, it's, uh, it's a work of platonic exegesis, you know, the interpretation of what Plato is trying to do with this dialogue, but you also sort of use it as a platform to talk about issues about uh, expertise and knowledge, what knowledge is, what political knowledge is, um, the, the alternatives to a system which is based on expertise, the, the potentialities of a system which is based on a particular conception of expertise and, and lots of other things. So um, I'm kind of speaking for you. So why don't I just back up? I just want to ask you, first of all, why did you write a book about the statesman? Because it, it's often seen, I think, as a little bit, not, not, not maybe Plato's greatest triumph um, and, and maybe not the most readable work. So why did you go for that one? Yeah, it's certainly not the most readable work, but uh, honestly, with, with Plato, like greater acquaintance breeds like more interest. Um, and uh, I, my initial plan was to write uh, a dissertation. This, this originated in my PhD dissertation. Um, my initial plan was to write a dissertation about the strangers in Plato, sort of look at the laws, uh, sophist, the statesman. Um, the dialogues where there is a, 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 a character identified as a visitor or a stranger. I like the, the word stranger, but, you know, it's often translated as senos, yeah. um, you know, the visitor. Um, and when I started to write this, I ended up focusing very much on the statesman because it was the most political dialogue and I was writing a dissertation for it political science um, degree. Um, and I find I found that you know it, it was one of those things that, that you only do in, in graduate school. You, you sort of like immerse yourself in a text. And you know I had learned Greek. I you know I read the whole thing in Greek. I translated it sort of I took notes on every passage in a sense. Um, and the more I thought about it, the more I thought this was a, a marvelously constructed puzzle, um, a piece of, of, of writing that, that was actually um, incredibly well put together um, as, a, as a kind of puzzle for interpretation um, and you know, with lots of, lots of connections to other dialogues in Plato, of course, and lots of... Uh, Lots of really interesting reflections in the end. Once, once you, once you figure out, I think what Plato is trying to do. Lots of really interesting reflections on the nature of expertise. And my take on it was that this is actually a dialogue that um, indicates. Uh, so, so the title of my book tries to suggest that that the stranger's knowledge that the the political knowledge is a stranger to the polis. It's external to it. It cannot be reproduced within it. 
um, necessarily needs to leave once, uh, once it's embodied in laws and institutions. Um, and there's probably a bit of an, an extreme position in the scholarship. Um, so most people um, think of, 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 of Plato as, as indicating or, or, or depicting here um, the kind of one incarnation of the philosopher king who rules in the city. Uh, even though there is no mention of the philosopher king here and there is no, the, the politicos is not, in my reading of it, is, is quite a different figure, uh, perhaps. That's right. I mean, uh, that's the stuff that I thought was really interesting about your interpretation, um, because I, I'd actually sort of naively read the states for myself as uh, um, an expression of this authoritarianism of Plato that Karl mm. Popper and people allege. Um, because there's a particular sentence which I remember grasping upon and putting in uh, to an essay at grad school where he says, you know, how many people are going to have this knowledge in the state, are going to have the capacity to be a, a real statesman? And I think he says maybe one or maybe, you know, or maybe two or three or maybe just one or something like that. Mm -hmm. So you think, wow, this is a very narrow conception. Um, yeah, and, and I, I think it is in some ways. Like, it's, um, my reading of it is that precisely because it is a very narrow conception, Plato is quite clear that it is not what's going to happen. You know, that, that, um, that you don't end up with a like a self-reproducing system of rulers uh, who have this knowledge. At best, you, you achieve something like uh, good laws that uh, imperfectly embody the knowledge of the statesman. Right. And yeah, so. Yeah. No, I, th this is all great. I, I actually want to go back to this in, in a minute, but, but first I, I actually wanted to um, try and situate the dialogue or just sort of introduce the dialogue in a very simple <clears throat> manner. So um, you mentioned before that you know, there's a series of, there's a number of figures in Plato who are also uh, strangers and they come into dialogue at a certain point. Um, mm -hmm. If I'm right, I think this is more of a feature of the, the, the later dialogues or, you know, we don't really know when, what order Plato wrote these dialogues in, but there's a sort of conventional ordering, early, middle, and late. Yeah. And one mm -hmm. of the conventional things people say about that ordering is that um, as you go along, the figure of Socrates changes. At first, he's sort of a less dogmatic figure. He's more questioning. In the middle period, it's, it's often said that he becomes um, someone who's maybe putting forth views of Plato rather than historical Socrates. And in the final phase, you have this kind of withering away of Socrates, and he, he's often replaced as the dominant interlocutor by some other figure. So, so in this dialogue, we, there's actually, I think, three or four different people, like Theodorus, who were just there at the beginning. But mm -hmm. uh, fundamentally, it's, the, it's a dialogue of two characters, right? Yeah, it's between uh, Eliadic Stranger, the visitor from Elea, and, so uh, and a young Socrates, it's not Socrates, not the Socrates that we know of. Socrates, historical Socrates, is sort of is, a, is in principle sitting in the audience, um, and he speaks briefly at the beginning of the dialogue um, to compliment the stranger. Because I mean, it sort of dramatically, uh, the conversation in the statesman is in a series. So there's the Theaetetus, where Socrates, the, the historical Socrates, examines Theaetetus. Uh, um, on the question of knowledge, right? Uh, in front of an audience 
consisting of Theodorus, um, a mathematician, and the younger uh, Socrates. And then there is the sophist in which um, um, Socrates sits in the audience as the visitor, the stranger from Malaya, uh, uh, discusses the sophist with uh, Theodorus as Theodorus and the younger Socrates sit there. And then there's the statesman. And, and there's a kind of implicit sequence, right? That they, they promise to speak of sophist statesman and philosopher, but there is no philosopher dialogue. Um, and in terms of a dramatic sequence, it would have made sense that uh, it would have ended with Socrates examining Socrates uh, on the question of the philosopher. But of course, we don't have the dialogue. And as with many things in Plato, uh, it's easy to speculate. Um, you know, did he plan to write it? Uh, maybe he did, maybe he didn't, maybe he just hinted at it as a sort of like ineffable, um, impossible to put in writing uh, dialogue. Or maybe it's, it's a bit of a platonic joke that there's gonna be like, well, who is the philosopher? It's Socrates speaking to himself, right? It's a dialogue within, uh, as, a, as Hannah Arendt uh, put it, you know, dialogue of thinking, uh, speaking uh, with myself uh, inside. Um, but, but the way that, that it's set up dramatically, the philosopher and the statesman are in principle different. Um, they're, they're three different figures and that's sort of stated fairly explicitly at the right. beginning. And so what, one of the things, again, if I recollect correctly, that they're talking about the Eliotic Stranger and Younger Socrates is a, a classic Socratic topic, which is, mm -hmm. A definition. So, what is the statesman? And the, mm -hmm. the way they go about this is is quite sort of baroque. Uh, it's this method of division. Yeah. No. It's Can it's, you talk uh, a little it's bit actually, about, So, what's the method of division, uh, and what role do you think it, it plays in this dialogue? Um, yeah. I mean, the method of division is essentially they they start with a a big you know what is the statesman? The statement is in this class of beings. And then they uh, make a division. Uh, they say, well, this class of beings can be separated into, uh, you know, uh, um, what's the, the earliest thing that the, I remember what I actually I have a figure here. Uh, it's kind of like playing 20 questions, isn't it? It's kind of yeah, like, exactly. are you so, a mineral or animal? Yeah, exactly, exactly like that. Um, there are a number of divisions in the dialogue. Um, in my book, I claim that they, they kind of represent one continuous division. I'm less sure of that now. Yeah. Um, uh, just trying to find a figure. Yeah, I remember you have some very good diagrams um, um, of the division. Oh, here it is. So. So they start with the, the, the idea that the statesman has some form of knowledge or expertise, and they say, well, uh, it can be either practical or theoretical. Uh, um, and then they decide that it's a theoretical form of knowledge, and then the uh, uh, question is whether it's uh, 
what they call critical or commanding or directive uh, some way. And so they go down this and it's, there's a bit of a joke as, as they go further down, they end up with the, the statesman as um, uh, uh, ruling concern with insole beings that attain, require collective care, who are land dwelling, that use feet for locomotion, that lack horns, uh, that are non-integrating uh, or, or have split hooves, uh, i.e. toes, um, that are two-footed, um, um, and you know that that require uh, human care rather than uh, divine care. Um, and there's clearly there's clearly something bizarre, baroque about this. Um, uh, I mentioned here. Let me find the sort of. Um, yeah, you reminded me of the um, you know the story about Plato defining man as a featherless biped. Yeah, and, no, it's it's and the story of Diogenes the Cynic going to the academy and throwing a plucked chicken at Plato as he was lecturing, and saying, "Yes, this is Plato's man." Yeah. Um, obviously in a later source, but I always like to tell that story to my students. Yeah. So, and, and in fact, that like, I think that there's an actual reference um, is Plato's man. Um, um, and there's clearly something going on here that we're meant to, to notice. Uh, this is in some ways a ridiculous definition. And, and part of what I argue in the book is that this sort of shows so, so something has gone wrong with the, with the definition. We are presented, at, like what, what is presented as the essence of human beings is not their rationality, but their animality. They are, they're, we're not presented as beings who can rule themselves. We are presented as beings with, with certain particular bodies. Uh, and that leads directly into sort of the great myth of the statesman uh, where where the kind of the consequences of this view are worked out, you know, what, what would it mean to say that, uh, that or you know, the, the statesman rules over beings who do not have rationality, who cannot rule themselves? Um, and you know, to put things a little bit more, more, um, uh, more extremely than perhaps I do in the book, is that what, what you get is the world in reverse, right? You know, you get, uh, 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 gods who rule over animals who actually uh, you know, come from the earth and you know they, they live lives that are in reverse from what we normally uh, so, yeah, so well, i think well, actually well, I, I i just sort of read plato as, as a kind of humorous writer in some ways yeah. like he, he's making very elaborate jokes and perhaps it's my particular sense of humor that i find this funny um yeah, I mean, he's writing, he's writing science fiction in a sense. I, I think we should read it like that. It's kind of like these, these, these mythoi are kind of cool, cool stories that, that um, draw us in and, and reveal something about human nature or, or the nature of politics or, or whatever. But we should just back up again because people are going to hear us talking about the world in reverse and um, mm -hmm. uh, human lives in reverse and think we've gone completely bonkers. So, um, so Plato in his dialogues often has these myths. The Greek word muthos can mean a, a story or it can also have a sense of our word myth. And there are several of these, you know, Protagoras has one near the beginning, Plato Protagoras, and the Republic has one near the, at the end, and the Gorgias has a famous one at the end. 
So this is another mm -hmm. one of those in the, in the States. Yeah. So let's just, can you just say, so what actually happens in this, in this myth to the extent that um, there's any consensus on that? It, well, there isn't a lot of consensus on it. And the, the myth is, um, the myth isn't entirely clear. I have a very strong view that I defend in the myth, uh, in my chapter. Um, um, I, I don't think the, the scholarship has reached any consensus even as to how many periods the myth depicts or where, you know, what happens in each period. Uh, so the, there's relative, like the majority view is that there are, the, the myth depicts a, a kind of cycle in the cosmos. Um, and the majority of you suggest that there are two periods, although people don't necessarily agree about exactly what happens in each period. There's a minority view that says that the, the myth depicts a, a cosmos in which there, there are three periods. Um, now, I, you know, in the book, you probably don't want to get into this, this sort of the, the scholarly disputes about this, um, but um, in the book, I argue that this, this is totally wrong. There can't be three periods, there have to be two, for a variety of reasons. No, I think, I, I, think they, I agree they, with you. I think there's supposed to be two, right? So yeah. And, and what are they? So first, it's the, the so 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 it's a so they're conventionally denoted as sort of the age of Cronus and the age of Zeus, but it's presented as a cyclical movement. This is something that happens like the, you know, it's a repeated pattern. Uh, in the age of Cronus, the god uh, rules the cosmos and turns it. You know, it's a kind of geometrical metaphor. Um, actually, I think there's there's something like the uh, the metaphor of the. Uh, let me see if I can show you an image, which I have in the book. Uh, the spinning. Um, I'm not sure if that's very visible. All right. Yeah, this is from the British Museum. Okay. There's a um, spinning woolen thread, um, and this. The, the spinning of the thread, you know, puts it in order, creates the thread. And if it uh, spins in the other direction, it will unspin, you know, mm. fall into disorder. I think that's sort of the basic guiding metaphor of the myth. There's, as we see later, there's a discussion of weaving um, and, and spinning plays a part in it. Um, so they're, they're kind of textile metaphors woven throughout the, the, the dialogue. Um, and so, so in the first age of the cosmos, the age of Kronos, the, the, the god weaves the cosmos. And then once it's woven, in a sense, the, the god lets it go and it spins in the other direction and it unweaves itself. And at the point where uh, it's about to fall apart entirely, the god takes it on again and weaves it. So, so that's a basic sort of big picture view of this. Um, but then, but the, the 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 myth actually has kinds of complex resonances. So, so there's a story about um, uh, I can't remember all. My memory is not what it used to be. But there are three sources: the, the sources of uh, the quarrel between Atreus and Thyestes, the Golden Age and the Age of Kronos, and the story of the sort of earthborn human beings, um, and they they presented. Uh, in a complicated way, so it's not always clear what's going on. But my sense is that in the first period where the world is ruled by the god, it's woven by the god, the gods themselves or, or sort of avatars of, 
of the of the of the one God who rules the cosmos, who weaves it together, um, are the rulers of human beings. This, so, and this is meant to suggest this is what would it be like, what it would be like if we were as described in the first division. If this if this was the, the politically relevant characteristic of human beings, if somebody else had all the rationality, all the knowledge, um, and all that was left. Uh, to us was to be fed, basically, was to be nurtured in the sense of like, you know, cattle, right? So we would be like cattle in the hands of the gods. Uh, but that's only possible if the statesman were a divine being who is the shepherd of men. So there's an implicit critique of the shepherd um, metaphor. It's not, it's not just implicit, it's actually explicit. They, they kind of set it aside. Um, um, and there's a discussion then of what happens when the the the, the cosmos has reached its the, when it's the right time for the god to let go of the cosmos. And I think this is kind of important because it suggests to me like I, I, I interpret the dialogue as kind of very complex structure of metaphors and and you know literary resonances and so on. And I think that what Plato is suggesting in the myth is that just as the god lets go of the cosmos, so um, the statesman um, in the city has to let go of the city. He weaves the order of the city, but has to let go. Um, and in the myth, what happens is, you know, there's a period of, of, of destruction um, and humans are left to rule themselves they cannot longer rely on the gods to shepherd them. You know, they, uh, they have to rely on the arts. Um, and, and there's a discussion about how uh, the arts are somehow given by the, the sort of the gifts of, of the gods um, in some sense. Um, and how we remember, how we, we sort of try to hold on to uh, the order um, that was part of the, the first age of the cosmos. So, so I think it's a, it's a really neat, complex, like science fiction story, as you said, like it, and, and it's also literarily like interesting, like there are all these like little bits and pieces that come together. Um, and I can't claim that, that I think we've solved the riddle or anything like that. But it is a bit of a riddle, like it's presented as something you have to work with. With a, like with a lot of the, the of Plato's later dialogues, I think what's really striking about them and what really got me interested into them is that they're not books. They're books that make you work. They're books that, that make you like figure out like, why is this nonsense here? Like, and yet, and, and you could, you know, pass it by and there are certain interpretations that say, well, it's just nonsense. Yeah, but I mean, I think one of the things he was trying to do was with the with the whole dialogue form was to, and he says this more or less explicitly in various parts of his work, was to kind of reinstall orality or to sort of do things through script that you could normally only do through talking to people in the agora, because you know the the ideal was these conversations that Socrates had, so um, you know the dialogue form is meant to be a, a way of reproducing philosophical dialogue. And so I think these little myths as well, the way that they draw you in, it's meant to be, it's meant to be kind of participatory, I, I suppose. Yeah. 
yeah no it, and i think I, I i think it is meant in that way um but anyway i think that the, mm. the main thing that that you that we get out of the myth i think emerges quite clearly as you say that there's this suggestion that the way humans are now um is that we we aren't beings that just have sort of demigods or sub-gods acting as direct shepherds over us and ruling our mm. lives and because of mm -hmm. that there's the necessity for politics we have to learn how to live in polis and yeah. city states or human communities um yeah. so, that, so that that if you, if you start there that sounds like it's kind of going the direction of the of the myth of protagoras in his great mm -hmm. speech that you know we're all equally endowed with justice and shame by the gods mm -hmm. so that we can form human communities and you get mm -hmm. arguably quite a kind of democratic vision. So is, is that where Plato is going here? And, and if it is, then why I, do you, why do you I, need a statesman anyway? What's the role of the statesman in this? Case? Yeah, I don't think that's quite uh, quite the way he's going. I mean, he hasn't accepted the Pythagoras idea that we're all equally endowed with, endowed with justice and so on. And I th the rest of the dialogue really does suggest that there is something uh, that is you know, strictly political knowledge that you know, there's, there's a knowledge of the statesman that's not reducible to our sense of justice or, or something that we're all equally endowed with. So, so there is that, that sort of elitist, anti-democratic character to the rest of the dialogue. But on the other hand, I think what the dialogue does show is that as it moves through this, this um, you know, the, the longer divisions that follow uh, the myth. And as it moves into trying to figure out what this knowledge actually consists in, its role becomes increasingly limited. Like, there's a lot of knowledge that we use in politics that is not a knowledge of the statesman. Right? That, uh, uh, all the way up to the knowledge of war and peace, uh, the, the general, the rhetorician, the judge, um, um, there are all kinds of, of forms of knowledge that are necessary for the polis, that are necessary to the order of, of, of the city, that are not the knowledge of the statesman. So I take it that, again, there's, there's a kind of fractal structure to this, like just as the god um, lets go of the cosmos, uh, but provides an order that uh, we must remember, so the statesman let's go of the police, but provides an order in the form of law that we must remember and hold on to, even though it's highly imperfect, because we don't, we don't have that knowledge. So even though it's not a democratic, I mean, you can't accuse Plato of being a supporter of democracy in that sense. Um, I think there is a, there is a, a recognition that, that political life cannot depend on having this sort of the, the, the strict political knowledge. We, we cannot depend on, at any level, on either divine statesmen or even sort of highly competent uh, statesmen, human statesmen. Um, and, and in some ways, this is, this is a regretful necessity for Plato. It's a second best. Um, we might not think it's a second best, but for Plato, it definitely is a second best. And the second best is where we're stuck. Okay, and so is the first is the first best the vision that we get in the in the Republic, because um, you know we can contrast what Plato writes presumably earlier 
in the Republic. And it seems like the theory there is that you train these philosopher kings in virtue um, and you, you train them also in, in intellectual pursuits, especially mathematics and geometry and things like that, so that they can then glimpse the form of the good because remember Plato, I mean, you know this, but just the people watching, you know, Plato has this metaphysics, um, universals here in these forms that are in some kind of other dimension and things partake of the forms and the form of something is it's absolute um, and mm -hmm. so once you grasp, once you have this high gluten education and, and you, you make it through all these examinations or, or, or the whole process, mm -hmm. whatever it is, and you grasp the form of the good and the noble, um, then you have the knowledge which is, which is requisite for ruling and also ruling in a kind of non-corrupt manner that it won't sort of mm -hmm. tempt you to sort of just take over everything once you've gotten this absolute power. Yeah. So that if, if that's more or less the vision of the Republic, this is something quite different, right? Because you, you don't have this, the, the whole setup of education. You don't have a philosopher king. It's something a, a bit more at arm's length than that, right? Yeah, and, and it's, it's kind of, I mean, I, I do speculate a little bit about the relationship between the Republic and the statesman. And I have to say, I'm not entirely sure uh, what, what is the, the, the ultimate, you know, the, the, I mean, there's something opaque about Plato's dialogues at the end of the day, um, even though there are many things that, that we know about it, um, that we can interpret. Um, I, I am not sure where does he come down on this. It does seem reasonable to think that the, what the Republic does is suggest that if you're going to have people who have knowledge to rule, you actually need to come up with an education system where these people are self-reproducing. Um, Whereas in the statesman, that's totally absent, right? Like the statesman appears as a kind of freak of nature. Like there's no discussion of how you would produce this knowledge. Where, where would you get it, right? Um, it's just a kind of analytical exercise. If you wanted uh, to have a well-ordered city, you need to have this knowledge, which has these characteristics, but there's no discussion about how, how it would be produced or reproduced. And, and a lot of the dialogue suggests that it just doesn't happen. Like, um, I make some analogies to the laws uh, later in the book. Um, and I think in the laws that the character of the Athenian stranger, uh, which some people have um, associated with Plato himself, um, I, I don't think that's necessarily right, but it's a possibility, um, is that the Athenian stranger is presented as a, as a kind of strange fruit of Athens. So Athens didn't set out to produce somebody who had the, the knowledge of legislation. Um, it didn't set out to produce the Athenian stranger. It just happened to allow it, right? So it's not a, it's not a systematic outgrowth of you know, a, a, a self-reproducing system. So you eventually, you do get people like this from time to time but it's not something you can count on. Um, and the Athenian stranger seems to himself agree with that, like because the code of laws that he presents in, in, in the laws does not have a provision for reproducing his own role. It's not like the education of the citizens of Magnesia uh, will lead to the production of philosopher kings. It produces you know, guardians, people with some basic knowledge, but they can't produce people like him. And, and, and I think it's quite a striking admission on Plato's part. Um, 
that perhaps there is this knowledge, but it's like uh, in the Protagoras, which you mentioned, um, um, isn't the, the, the question, if I remember correctly, about whether virtue can be taught, right? And Socrates falls into the, the camp of those who say, like, it's just sort of, he ended in a kind of position where maybe virtue cannot be taught, if, if I remember correctly. Um, that's right. Polit political virtue <laughs> can't be taught for Socrates. That, that's his yeah. initial complaint about Protagoras, because yes, mm -hmm. the enthusiastic young student of Protagoras, what is it that Protagoras actually teaches him? And he gets the chance to act, uh, ask Protagoras that directly. And he says, well, I guess I'm, mm -hmm. I think Socrates puts those words into his mouth, but what he's answered is effectively political arete, so political virtue or techne, political skill. Mm -hmm. and, and Socrates says, well, you know, that's not something that can be taught. I think that, I think yeah, and I think, but I think by the laws, which is conventionally thought to be the last dialogue Plato wrote, um, there's a kind of uh, acknowledgement of that, that if there is this political knowledge of the statesman that's required for the formation of the cities, it can't be taught in a systematic way. So you can't have the guardians of the Republic and the philosopher kings of the Republic systematically producing yeah, people no, I think with the knowledge required to rule. I mean, as you know, um, the laws especially, a lot of people think, well, this is some, something of a step down from the Republic. The Magnesia is a sort of more moderate vision than Calypolis. I mean, even that's disputed, but I think a lot of people mm -hmm. would say that. And I do think what you see in the laws with the design of Magnesia is much more attention to things like civic subdivisions and choruses and citizen education. So it's almost mm -hmm. as, if he's, as if he's sort of uh, accepted this to some, to some extent. There's still nocturnal councils and things like that. So there is still, still obviously a, rule, a place for knowledgeable, mm -hmm. uh, you know, expert elites in Plato's vision, but he's ceded a lot of ground to the idea that actually, which is something I think most sort of polis dwelling ancient Greeks would have thought that polis, mm -hmm. the city-states themselves are sort of part of your upbringing. The, the const, mm -hmm. you know, the, when they talked about constitutions, um, you know, sometimes you, you read these ancient works on the constitutions of certain city-states. And a lot of it is about upbringing and formation and, and education, you know. So they thought mm -hmm. of these things quite naturally as going, as going together. So, so yeah. I think what you seem to be arguing to me is something. It's almost like the statesman in this dialogue is like a constitutional founder in the, in the order of sort of Cleisthenes or various other historic yeah. constitutional founders that we, we yeah. have in ancient Greece. Yeah, but Plato has a as, yeah. I, I think that's totally right. It's what I I end up saying, um, but. I think Plato is, is coming at it from the, the perspective of like, you know, in the Republic, he, he, he imagines a system to produce his, his people. He imagines a culture or, a, or, a, or, a, or an educational system that can produce such people. Um, but in the statement that's absent and in the laws, it's sort of acknowledged implicitly that you can't have it. Like even if you have a, a code of laws, you, you don't get to produce people with this, with this, uh, with this knowledge. Um, if it happens, it happens sort of by freak accident in a place like Athens, right? There's a community of other people, um, the free speech of various kinds and so on. So it's, it's in a way a kind of backhanded compliment to Athens. It allowed people like Socrates and, um, and Plato to, to, to actually exist and thrive, even if they disagreed with Athenian democracy. Um, but yeah, so so I agree that you know there's this whole tradition of thinking of like education and you know the, the, the 
socialization or the, the culture that produces certain kinds of characters and elites and so on. Um, and Plato is trying to grapple with that. Like if you define political knowledge in, it, in, the, in the right kind of way, maybe, maybe there's no way to produce it. There's no way to, to get to it. Okay, I guess I'll, um, I, I want to sort of segue to the to some modern stuff as well. Otherwise, this will be the ancient and ancient sure. episode. <laughs> ancient and ancient. It's kind of it's kind of easy though because I mean, there's there's so much in the way that Plato mm -hmm. thinks about politics. I mean, at least in the Republic, and as we mm -hmm. say, he's, he's sort of maybe stepped down a bit from that by the time of the mm. laws and maybe by the time of the statesman as well. But this mm -hmm. whole idea of episteme. I mean, you talk about episteme knowledge a lot in your book. Mm -hmm. Um, and I mean, at his most bold, I, I really think that he, 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 he does think that, you know, once you achieve this kind of political knowledge, that's what's required to rule. And really, and, that, and that's, that's the ideal for him, really. I mean, that's the, the best way of thinking about mm -hmm. it, is that we really should have a system in, in an ideal world in which there are people who just know how to do politics, and they can kind of do it on behalf mm -hmm. of, of everybody else. So um, I guess the question is just, how does this does this sort of help you think about expertise in the modern world? And because there have been some pretty recent debates about this, this idea that you know we should have um, an epistocracy. I think this is Jason mm. Brennan's term, where we have yeah. more knowledgeable people who have a bit more of a say in politics because you know some people are just uh, information poor. And and I'm not I don't want to mock this view because actually you know mm -hmm. you, you can do surveys and stuff, and some people do no more more than others. Mm -hmm. So what do you think about this mm. idea in the modern world that you know some people should have? Yeah, I think uh, Plato actually thought of it in a fairly different way that somebody like Jason Brennan uh, would have thought of it. Like I think what you what you learn from the, the the statesman is that there's a lot of technical knowledge that is not political knowledge. Like political knowledge is pretty like very specific thing. Um, it doesn't have anything to do with uh, sort of being well or poorly informed about, you know, I don't know the details of our constitutional arrangement or, or something. It's, and, and if you look at the Republic, the earlier vision, perhaps, you know, it, it's very specific what the, the philosopher king needs to know. Needs to know the, the good, the form of the good. So it's, it's moral knowledge really um, before everything else. Um, and I think what the, what the statesman did in the dialogue is, is sort of think about how you get that the form of the you know, things like the good and so on. How would you actually use that to make judgments about particular cases? And it's it's a it's a it's a big problem, right? So you might think, well, you know, maybe somebody um, knows in general abstractly some, you know, what the right thing to do is. Uh, but how would you actually make a determination of the particular of the world of change, right? where politics is constantly changing? There, there always new things. Um, and, and and at the end of the day, I think Plato's answer is quite profound. That, like you know, if you think of political knowledge in this way, it's a, it's a knowledge of the kairos, the appropriate. Uh, thing. And it's not a knowledge of, um, say, how to wage war or so on. It's, it's a knowledge of 
the time to wage war or not. Or it's, it's not a knowledge of you know, particulars of, of legal case. It's a knowledge of you know, the, the, the appropriateness of legal uh, resolution and so on. Yeah, if you, um, I, I think that's right. I think he did have that conception, although if you push on that too far, then the, the, the conception of uh, platonic epistemic kind of collapses into mere uh, prudentia or, or kind of phronesis, I suppose. You know, just an mm -hmm. idea of, um, mm -hmm. I know what to do at the right time. And, and that's the kind of thing yeah. that, that everybody kind of thinks that about politicians, don't they? That like the prime minister should know vaguely sort of what to do at, at time x I yeah think what you were saying at the beginning i mean i think plato is a bit more ambitious than that he, he yeah he's trying to connect moral those knowledge two, but... and, and, yeah. and in that sense you know I, I often think that you know again when i'm trying to talk to the students about the republic in a way his vision is is almost a theocratic one it's 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 one mm -hmm. where there are these there are these sort of wise people i mean he says that you can be a woman too actually mm -hmm. um one of the only really progressive <laughs> bits in plato Mm -hmm. um, so the, the, there's this sort of cast of wise ones who, who can rule. And so you, what you should think of as, I suppose, something like the Dalai Lama or you know, monks mm -hmm. or, or something like that, you know, and, and an ideal vision of them as they are actually um, sincere and, and doing a good job. Yeah. Yeah. No, and I think like when we transpose it to the modern world, I think there's something to be said for, for a, the epistocratic argument. Um, that politics requires some knowledge. It's a bit more complicated to say what are the institutional forms that best exploit that knowledge. Um, and, you know, there's a sort of lively debate with sort of the epistemic Democrats who argue that democracy best um, allows people to uh, sort of pull the, the diverse perspectives, diverse forms of knowledge and so on into um, um, you know, a better decision by whatever metric you want. Uh, and the sort of the more epistocratic perspective that says, well, there are some decisions where uh, limiting the inputs is actually probably better uh, and uh, it results in better outcomes somehow. Um, I think at the level of the system, of the, the system as a whole, I think the sort of the epistemic democracy Democrats have a better case. Like if you don't focus on a particular sort of realm of policy, say, I don't know, monetary policy or, or, or um, I don't know, uh, uh, macroeconomic stabilization or something like that. There's a, in those limited realms, there's probably a case for saying that expertise matters and limits to the inputs that you put in it uh, probably makes some sense. Uh, but that just means I'm a kind of boring <laughs> liberal uh, Democrat here. Like, I, you know, I think that, you know, representative democracy is a fine system in this sense. It, 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 it strikes the balance between those, those things in, well, I, in a reasonable I, way. Yeah, I think you, you've basically said what, what I think more or less, although maybe I'd put the, <laughs> distinction in slightly different terms. I mean, I, I think what I, what I think is that um, clearly political questions tend to be questions that are normative or, or, or that are about, you know, what we should do, what we ought to do, where we're going to go in terms of the political community, um, how we identify things like that. And for questions like that, what you really need to do is aggregate 
people's preferences because it's essentially these things are, are essentially questions of um, what people's preferences are. They're not answerable by means of technical knowledge. So that's where I think the big argument with Plato is that he perceives the politics itself as a kind of technical knowledge. And I, and I, I share the criticism of people who say, well, that's just not the kind of thing that politics does. And, and there, there are various technical, technical um, expertises, you know, mm -hmm. technical fields, which can touch upon those decisions. And you, you can consult specialist economists about what's going to happen to the economy if you leave the European mm -hmm. Union or, or, or whatever. You can, you can mm -hmm. consult with expert military men about how many tanks you're going to need if you want to invade country X. But, mm -hmm. it, but it, ultimately, whether you ought to do those things, th those are political questions. And those are, are, are questions that should be put to everybody. Yeah. No, I, I, but, but I think in a way, they, I, I think that's kind of what the statesman was saying in the dialogue, like the, that they're all these expertises, but they're not political questions, ultimately. Like, like the political question is a different kind of knowledge. And we could give it a, a kind of democratic spin in the modern world and say, well, democracy is the way we, we try to approximate that political knowledge. Um, you know, we do have generals, we do have like, you know, legal experts, we do have people, economists and so on and so forth who, who deal with like limited aspects of the order of the society. Um, political knowledge is different. Um, in the, in, the, in modern terms, the best approximation to it we have found is a kind of democratic approximation where we take some process through to deliberate through a variety of perspectives and, um, and ideas about what is good or bad and come up with a kind of some best answer somehow. Um, yeah, I mean, I guess what I had in mind was something mm -hmm. so basic that I don't even know if I want to call it knowledge. I mean, it's, I suppose I'm with the kind of very old fashioned Democrats who th think of it as an aggregation of preferences in, in a kind of utilitarian uh, scheme. Mm -hmm. And then to me, it's almost, um, it, it, it's too elitist already to call it, call it knowledge because then you're sort of ju judging what the aggregation of people's preferences in a certain way. But, mm -hmm. but I, I suppose you, you could say, well, okay, well, even if we just run the system as an aggregation of preferences, that's how we make decisions. You could say mm -hmm. to a democracy, um, hey, democracy X, um, we know that, you know, you're going to aggregate your preferences and that's fine. But if you want to have a really well-run state, you should think about the following things. And, and there's actually a, a knack to this. And, mm -hmm. and, and, and so I guess that, is that where the statesman comes in? Because it's almost like a figure. Well, I, I mean, I think, I, I, I guess I'm a, I'm a sort of Platonist at this, at this point. Like, I do think there, there will be external standards. So I'm with the epistemic Democrats here, like, we, we can, uh, you know, we can't be certain what those epistemic standards are, but we can judge the outputs of the democratic process in various ways. Um, and, and I think that that goes to kind of the design of institutions, right? If we say, well, the democracy is an aggregation of preferences, I would still want to say, well, you know, there are certain better and worse ways of aggregating those preferences. Um, and uh, a kind of a system that allows for multiple opportunities for deliberation, that has you know, uh, inputs that are not unnecessarily polarized, that allows for the exchange of reasons, so you do the sort of basic Habermasian uh, stuff, basically, of the de deliberative system. 
and the connecting to the political system so it reaches a decision. Um, I think you end up at a place where it's not platonic exactly, but there is something to be said for the idea that that, that deliberative system expresses some approximation to a correct decision uh, in some sense. Um, and whether or not you structure it properly, it makes you closer or you know, further away from, from what would be a good, a good decision. Uh, on average, over time and so on, not every decision is going to come out. Yeah, I suppose, but then you know, how, how you judge what a good decision is, I mean, ultimately it comes down to what people tend to want, right? Because you can say we have various output messages, um, uh, mm -hmm. measures like we want to be reasonably prosperous or not dirt poor. We want to be reasonably secure, or at least not sort of regularly dominated by, by external mm -hmm. enemies. And mm -hmm. th these, I think, make sense as output measures because they tend to be things, they're, they're things that people tend to like. Um, mm -hmm. So, but if that's the case, then the, the aggregation of preferences, that, that should track those things as well. Mm -hmm. Although I, I agree that you can get into these situations where we've seen in human history where things go wrong. I mean, whether, whether those things have gone wrong so often when you have a good democratic system, or more often when you have a good democratic system or, a, or an authoritarian system is a, is a big question. I mean, I would, I would argue the latter. I mean, partly there's just this statistical problem that so many of the regimes of the past have been non-democratic. Um, so mm -hmm. it's hard, it's hard to, to see. But, um, but I, as, the, as for the sort of Habermasian structure, you know, making sure people can discuss, can discuss things, I mean, I suppose I'd retreat to the position that those are the things which allow honest preferences, your actual preferences to be aired. Um, but then, then you might say, well, you're already judging, you know, people's preferences, um, so. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I, I guess, I mean, there's a more minimal, I think there's, there's a more minimal view that it's aggregation of preferences, the, you know, sort of the Schumpeterian view of democracy. It's still, there's still standards in the evaluation of that, like Schumpeter and uh, Chorsky uh, today basically say, well, at the end of the day, it matters because it's a peaceful way of resolving interest disputes but but that already assumes that you know peace is the thing we we ought, that, that sets a standard that we ought to care about and i think that's a, a sort of platonic view come in yeah well, where do you get those standards right uh is it you know some theory of human nature is it some theory of, like um you know there, there, there has to be some external knowledge in a way some external some some external view there's an internal view but there's also the external view that that allows you to judge you know, whether or not the standards are being met. And, and even if we take the very minimal sort of Schumpeterian Swarovski view of democracy in terms of aggregation of preferences and so on, um, you still end up with questions of institutional design. Maybe some systems of aggregation of preferences are better or worse at managing those conflicts. Right? Uh, I don't know, my, my colleague, John Frankel, uh, teaches a course on, on governing divided societies and he has lots of you know particular discussion of the scholarship on whether or not certain constitutional arrangements are better able to head off those those conflicts and so on. Yeah. Um, so yeah. even there there's there's a kind of political knowledge involved. 
Yeah, you, you, um, I wouldn't want to. I wouldn't want to um, make it impossible for societies to learn from the mistakes. Certainly, and then you know, there's the problem which has been around since the Tocqueville, or which has had a name since the, since the Tocqueville, which is the uh, you know the tyranny of the major, majority problem. Mm. I mean, mm. American founders were, were worried about that as well. Mm. I would say on the point about Schumpeter, I, I mean, that's interesting because um, I mean that's basically Karl Popper's view as well. I think that he he pretty much followed Schumpeter in this, to, that the, the virtue of a democratic system is that you can get rid of um, an elite or the, the section of the elite that's currently ruling if they become too corrupt or they become incompetent. Um, yeah. You, can, yeah. You, can have, you can have a view which is, which is founded on aggregation preferences without that elitist vision. So you don't, you don't have mm -hmm. to have that within a representative uh, democratic mm -hmm. framework. So for example, the Athenians, were aggregating citizen preferences, but they had a much mm -hmm. more ample conception of you know, who could be a magistrate. And, yeah, and, uh, I do think there's something to be said, like Joe Schober's book on Athenian democracy, which you know and I really like. And, I mean, it's sort of um, democracy and knowledge. And, and he makes a really good case for, for uh, the Athenians having a very excellent system for like, not just aggregating preferences, but you know, aggregating the diverse knowledge of the, of the citizens and so on. And in a sense, I think that's sort of a sort of epistemic Democrat view, right? That the Athenians just got a better system, they embodied their knowledge of the you know, internal knowledge of, you know, standards and you know, values and so on in a better way than, than many others. Um, yeah. So. I, I, yeah. The only hesitation I have there is that, you know, that um, there's lots of work now about, you know, the wisdom of the, of the crowds. I mean, I suppose it's, it's more sort of five or 10 years ago now, um, <laughs> before Twitter <laughs> really, really took off. <laughs> but, um, uh, you know, um, Helen Landemore, for example, who mm -hmm. has written about this and there's various experiments that suggest that, you know, you get people around a table and they have diverse forms of knowledge and, and, and that can, be better at solving problems than just sort of expert-led procedure, mm -hmm. and I and I think that's very promising. And I I see the studies that she's looking at. Um, mm -hmm. I think in some ways though that that argumented attack has has moved things onto a on, onto a ground where the where the Platonists um, and the epistocrats are actually quite strong because they mm -hmm. can say, no, look, there are obviously some fields from sort of chest to brain surgery where experts just massively outperform, um, you know, mm -hmm. people who are trying to, who, yeah. people who aren't experts are trying to sort of combine, combine their knowledge. So, mm -hmm. so yes, I, I do think that, that um, collective action is good at solving problems in certain um, circumstances, but I don't think that it's the sort of strongest foundation for a defensive democracy. Mm -hmm. But anyway, I yeah. should, um, I, I should, I should um, end at this point because I just had a knock, knock at my door. Okay. Um, but uh, and also because it's, we've come to an hour, so I'm sorry okay. we, didn't, we didn't get to talk about your book on non-democracy. <laughs> but there's a solution uh, to that, which is people should go and read it. Um, okay. Go and buy it. So thank you very much, Javier. Thank you. Um, thank you, James. Yeah, this is great fun talking. Bye. Bye.